0: Hello everyone, I'm Dan Tibbs, Grateful Alcoholic. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I this is this is the first time I've had to, ever had to go fifteen hundred miles to get to a meeting. <laughs> <laughs> but one good thing, it was it, it's, it's a straight shot. So it was it is a great deal. And uh I am uh, privileged and it's an honor to be here tonight and I thank you for allowing me to share. Thanks, Mike, and I uh you know it's it's well, first, got it, we weren't sure how many people were going to show up, and I'm saying, because they know who I am, and they just ain't showing up, or we just, what the deal? <laughs> but, you know, if you're not an alcoholic and you know who I am, you probably wouldn't want to show up. Because I know that I've been into a lot of places where people didn't want me to show up. And today, through the grace of God and this program, of Alcoholics Anonymous, I've been asked to show up every once in a while. And they say, you know, whenever you're asked to speak, you always don't ever say no to an AA request unless you got a damn good reason. And I said, well, it's 115 degrees out there. Maybe that's a good enough reason, but it's not. So I said, well, let me get in. So, you know, I, I'm here tonight, and I, I'm, I'm really blessed to be here tonight. That's, 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 that's a good thing. But, you know, they, I, they say, you know, you share your experience, strength, and help with each other. And, I, and I'm, I'm a firm believer in that today because I know that if we share our experiences, what we've been through, and we get so, just one person to hear it and it makes a difference, it's worthwhile. Because I hear a lot of people talking about, you know, hey, religion and all that good stuff. Hey, I have no problem with religion because if it gets one person sober and keeps them sober, that's all, that's what it's about. It doesn't matter. You know, there's all this other stuff about, hey, you gotta do this and you gotta do that. There's certain things in Alcoholics Anonymous that we must do. And I agree with that. And I, you know, I'm a, we're all testimonies to that fact. However, I know a lot of people that are out there that are just staying, staying sober, and their lives are not happy whatsoever. And that, that, that's a sad part. But uh you know I I can I can remember I'm going to start out with this. Uh, I grew up in Iowa. Well, let me put it this way. I was born in Grinnell, Iowa, and uh, we stayed there until I was about 9 or 10. I I can't remember which. But you know, when I was there I my dad loved he's he's passed away now. That's a, that's further down the road. But he was, uh, at that time, he was an alcoholic, too, and I didn't know it. Because I didn't know what alcohol was. At that age, I didn't know what it was. I just knew that uh, on Saturday night, they all got together and played cards of some sort. They don't even know what it was. And they drank. And I can remember, you know, how kids will do. They want And I seen this clear glass of water by Dad, and I was going to take me a good, a good, you know, hey get a drink from Dad's water. ain't no big deal. <laughs> However... That was not the case. I took that drink, and I about died. Because he drank gin straight. And I coughed, and I spit, and I... And, you know, I think that's... I'm pretty doggone sure, and that's when my first resentment occurred, and I didn't even know it. Because everybody thought it was funny. Ha, 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 look at him, look at him. And I, you know, I, I really got pissed at that. But, you know, being that age, I couldn't do anything about it. But I can remember one day, I looked out the window, just before I was going to school, I'm, I don't know, first grade or whatever, and my next-door neighbor walked out the door, and he had his uh, suit on and his white shirt and his tie you know, and his briefcase, and and, and all, he was looking sharp, you know, to a T. And they had a brand-new car, he was walking out, and he walked out the door, and his wife kissed him goodbye, and, and I said, wow, because my dad was a grease monkey. He'd go to work, you know, in his overalls, they were. Mom took care of him. She laundered and everything was clean. When he'd come home, he looked like a daggone. He'd been working in a coal factory. And I said, I didn't want no parts of that. I didn't want that. But I wanted what that next door neighbor had. So I asked Mom, I said, Mom, how do I get that? And she said, Son, get an education. Because once you get an education, nobody can take that away from you. So I, that was my first time that I can, when I look back at it, when I was obsessed with something, I didn't know I, was in the, I had an obsessive personality. But education was my, my obsession at that time. And, you know, I went to school, and I did, and I was straight a straight-A student, but the thing I didn't realize is that I, I wasn't playing with my next-door neighbors. It was all by myself. It was all about me. I had no friends. I had one guy that we ran with when I wasn't studying. And you know it, it's amazing that at that young age, even I, I, my obsession took over, and it was full blown. Then it was because that was my you know that was my deal. And we moved from Omaha, I mean Omaha, from uh, Grinnell, Iowa. And you got to keep in mind in Grinnell, Iowa, there was, there's was a white community. We were the only blacks outside of Grandma, and I can remember. One night we were out on Halloween throwing pumpkins on the highway. Highway six goes right through the town, and we were throwing pumpkins and everything out in there. And we come home, and the cops were sitting on the front porch, waiting for us. How come? Yeah, we couldn't do anything. We were only black people. Hey, seen a black person? Yep, they live on Summer Street. Yep. I mean, it was, it was, it was. but that, you know, that was one of those things. But we moved from there. We moved to Cedar Rapids, in, in, in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Because Dad said, uh, it's time to move out of I mean, Grinnell. Because you know people will start calling us out of our names and all that good stuff. And he didn't want us to grow up in that kind of a situation. So we moved. And we went to Cedar Rapids. We stayed for nine months. And, and, and I was learning that even there, we only stayed for about nine months. But I was obsessed with learning. And I studied. I didn't have no friends. I didn't make friends. I got two older brothers, and they were out partying all the time. They were doing the things that I didn't have time to do. And I got, uh, at the time when I was there, I got a baby sister and uh, two other brothers at that time. And then we moved. We moved there, but I mean, I did my drink. I didn't. I did my obsession there. The teachers just loved me. Cause I would go to and clean the boards, and I would just do. You know, I was a people pleaser, and I found out at a young age that's how you got things done. If you wanted something done, hey, manipulation was a good way of doing it. But we moved there. We moved from there and went to Omaha in in '57. Now I'm not not that you you don't you don't have to count. You know, my ages will be coming up, but you know. But we moved there in '57, and I can say. And at that time, Dad was working at the packing houses because in Omaha, the packing houses were going going strong. And it, money was flowing all over the place in Omaha. And, you know, there was nightclubs, and just you name it, they had it. And they had a street called 24th Street, and that's where all your blacks were, up and down the street. And they had their strip joints, and they had their, you know, nightclubs, and everything was there. And it was really... And I was in... I wanted to be into that, but I still had to go to school and get my education. But Dad also had a Dairy Queen and an Eskimo Drive-In, which an Eskimo Drive-In is like a Dairy Queen, that we we ran, and my two older brothers and me, and and Mom and Dad. But Dad worked at the packing house, so Mom ran the the business with us, and if if you work for the family, you know you never get paid. It's just one of them things. You know, you go to work, and you, just, you don't get paid. But uh, the t- cash register was there. There was nobody there to keep me from getting it. Nobody there to keep anybody from getting it. And what really it was really bad. When I say bad, my two older brothers, they got into the to the to the to the, the, the if you want to call it that, in Omaha, Nebraska. And they were running up and down the street, and they was coming back and having fun and telling me about this stuff. And I'm, you know, there, being a good son, going to school, doing the things that I was supposed to do. And they were out having fun. And that went on for a while. And then one day they asked me, says, Dan, don't you want to go with us? And I've been wanting them to ask me all this time, you understand? But, you know, I was was doing my duty, you know. So I went out with them, and, you know, it's... I was, the fear factor was in me, okay? How do I act? Here I am, 16 years old, don't know anything about women, don't know anything about dancing. What do I do? Well, they offered me that good stuff, and I took a drink of that, and I didn't have any problem whatsoever. And after that night, I always wanted more, because I had a hell of a night that night. It was really a fantastic night. And... You know, and I kept going back. I was still keeping my grades up, but I was still partying and trying to do, you know, this good thing about being a good son and all that good stuff. And I remember, after a while, Dad, he he started not coming home. But when he did come home, he wasn't he wasn't himself. You know, I didn't know anything about this disease of alcoholism at the time. And I can remember coming home probably after I take, dropped off my one of my lady friends, and I came home one night, and he was in there trying to force himself on Mom. He was going to get his whatever, and she was screaming. And, and you know, being a dutiful son, That, that you don't mess with Mom. That's just one of the things you don't do. I don't care who you are. And I confronted him, and he, dad, he said, hell, it, it wasn't worth it to him to to get in trouble with me and my two older boys. My two oldest, two older brothers. So he left the house and he moved out, and mom had to go to work. And my two older brothers at this time were drinkers. They called me one, two o'clock in the morning to come down and pick my brothers out the gutter and take them home. And me, I, I drank periodically, but not not that much. So I was I was all right. Anyway, I thought so. But uh, it was amazing and and. That went on for quite some time, and then finally, I can remember moving well, not moving, getting drafted, going into the military. And I don't know about you, but the military was one of those things where the Vietnam was going on. I was not going to go to war fighting, killing people to me. My moral says now, why am I going to go across the, someplace out of my country to kill people? I said, that was not my stroke. So I went into uh, Army Security Agent, four years, went in, did my my tour duties and had fun. And we got married. I got married while I was there and had a son. And I didn't see my son until he was three months old. And she was living in San Francisco. But while while I was in Alaska, which I spent a year up there, there's nothing to do but drink and gamble. It was a mile, an island this big. A mile one way and a mile and a half the other way with a sixteen story building on it that housed sixteen hundred GIs. Nothing to do but drink and gamble. I love that. I love that. And I drank and I gambled. When I come back to San Francisco I had enough money to buy a new car and we bought a new car and drove back across country back to back to Des Moines, Iowa, which I've been where I we had lived. And you know, I, and just to make it quick and just to the point, I can remember going to work one day because I got hired in Des Moines by a l- large corporation. And that corporation, just to show you at that time what this corporation did or what our society was like, it was a world Herald, I mean, the Des Moines Tribune, and they had one eyes for work but they had it, and they put it in their. And they had the Iowa Bystander, and they were hiring out of the Iowa Bystander, which is a black newspaper. And they were hiring, and I I got the job out of here. It wasn't in the regular newspaper, cause they would they didn't want white people. They wanted black. So I got it, and I, and I went to work for that big corporation. They sent me to Rochester, Minnesota, for six months to go to school. I about flunked out of school because up there in Rochester is where the Mayo Clinic is, nurses and all kinds of good females up there. So I had a good time up there, but I almost flunked out. But I finally got back to, I finally got out, went back to Des Moines, worked in Des Moines. And I I went to work one day and when I was at work, I had a hell of a headache. And I was working on the typewriter at the time because that was my job. So I went home. Wife took me to the hospital. And they say, Oh, here, take a couple of aspirins, go home and you know, call me in the morning. A couple hours later my head got so bad that I just couldn't oh. And I my wife took me was on my way to the hospital, and that's all I remember for the next ten days. And I was in a coma for the next ten days. And when I come out of that coma, the doctor says, Boy, you're a lucky person. Cause I had a brain aneurysm. Yeah. And he says, People don't live through those. And that's my first experience of my higher power. He did for me what I couldn't do for myself and what the doctors couldn't do for me. But did that stop me from drinking? Not hardly. A couple of weeks later, you know, I was right back out there doing this. Doing the same old, same old same. And that's where my, my drinking in the morning went. And then I finally got transferred to Detroit where I... Uh, Continue drinking, and you know all this time my education. I started college in Detroit because I'm going to be, you know, I'm now I'm going to be the president of IBM. That's the company I work for. I am going to be the the man, the top man. So I worked hard, and I finally, and, and, and just to show you what how smart we are, when I moved from Des Moines to Detroit to move there, they gave me a four hundred dollars. $400 increase in pay a month. And six months later, I got a $375 increase in pay a month. And then the next six months, I got a $300. And then the next increase was $200. Now, you know, in this mind, this way of thinking of an alcoholic, I'm doing great. But I mean, You've been giving me all these good raises. Now, all of a sudden, I'm down to $200 a year. And it's been six months and 300 I couldn't quite understand that. It hurt the hell out of my ego, I tell you I, I, had, I, I talked to my manager and says, What's up with that? I'm doing a good job because you know we in in my mind we get paid paid for perform performance. and did my performance go down? well, i didn't realize at the time that the cost of living from Des Moines to Detroit was astronomical, so they had to do that to get me up to up to speed. But uh, I worked hard, and and finally, you know what happened? I went to. They sent me on a special assignment in Lexington, Kentucky. And what happens is, when they send you on a special assignment, when you come back in 30 days after your special assignment, they promote you to field manager, and you go to become a field manager, progressing up the line. Well, when I went to Lexington, Kentucky, I got down there, and I was working for a field manager that was about to retire, and he didn't give a damn about whether he did good work or not. And that's about the time, well, that is the time when the IBM Selectory Typewriter came out. And that was my job, was to to instruct new people. And we was around the clock. We had students around the clock simply to get enough people. They was coming from all over the country, down to Lexington. And my job was to help instruct. Now, I had people to come in and help me. And my manager said, Dan, you take over everything. So what do you mean everything? He said, "You take over, keep making sure the records are right, if the person wasn't going to do it, fire them, whatever the case may be. I said, "But that's not my job." He says, "Somebody's got to do it." Well, this ego was great. So I said, okay, I could do that." And I was supposed to have been there for 30 days. I was down there for nine months. And fortunately, they gave us a trip back and forth to Detroit every, twice, every, twice a month. So they paid us back for it. So it wasn't too bad. The thing, the bad thing about Lexington, Kentucky, is Kentucky's dry. So to get what you, to drink, you, you know, you go out to the bar, but you couldn't go to a liquor store. They had not So I, but I, uh, you know, I figured out a way. Right about an hour up the road is a Ohio. So I'd get over four forty-five going home sometimes. That's. It. And hit Ohio and, and get my booze and my bourbon and head the road. But I can remember coming out of a, a bar one night with the guys, and they all went home, and, you know, me and me, you know. I jumped in my car and I can drive, I know where I'm going. I'm staying in the hotel. But they also have what they call the loop. And I had to get on that to get back to the hotel. And I got on that loop about 1.30. And I swear to God, I got off that loop about 7 in the morning. <laughs> round and round and round, because I didn't know what exit to get off on. And I, But, hey, went on to work anyway. And those, but, you know, that's that's the, I, that should have told me something, but it didn't. It didn't tell me anything. It just told me that, hey, you're sober now, what the hell? You made it through. So... But I finally got, uh, got out of Lexington and went back to Detroit. And in 30 days, I'm expecting my promotion. Well, it didn't happen. 60 days, it didn't happen. Now, my performance is excellent. And I went to the boss and said, what's up? He said, it's coming, it's coming. Hold off, just wait. Six months later, they finally got my promotion through. And I went to Naptown, Indianapolis as a field manager down there. And there were seven of us down there. And just to make a long story short, the guy that I worked for, he was a good guy. Excellent, excellent manager. Excellent manager. But his daughter, his stepdaughter worked for me as a technician. And she wasn't with a nickel. I mean, she couldn't fix, a, a, she couldn't fix a flat tire anyway. So my, my, and I didn't know what to do. Because the other guys, hey, you know, they had to help her. She was always calling for help. Help me fix this. Help me fix that. Now, I'm not saying it's she just because it's a she. It just happened to be a she. Okay. But they, she she was always asking for help. They always complained. Man, we're tired of carrying her. My job as a manager is to fix the problem. And she was the problem. And so I had to go in and talk to her stepdad and say, hey, she, I got to fire. He said, "Well, you got to put her on a performance plan." And I said, "Okay." And I did that for thirty days, and she still didn't do it. So he said, "Well, just hold off. Don't fire." Because I was thinking, I was really scared to go talk to him because, you know, that's her stepdad, and I got to work for him, and he's got to give my performance plan, and on and on and on. But in the end, it worked out well because he transferred her into parts distribution. She excelled in it. And he he was glad. He said, "Dan, you did the right thing." And they gave me a raise. So you know, everything worked out. But uh, the bad thing about Indianapolis was, is the wife was not happy. And I don't blame her, because I'm I'm on I'm one on what I call the fast track. And to do that, I got to spend time at work and do all these things. And plus, I had to have time to drink. I didn't have time for her. And you know she's sitting at home all by herself with the kid and I'm never home and that she, so she said well I want to go back to Detroit because she had made some friends in Detroit at least some girls so we got, went back to Detroit and I kept drinking I kept drinking and, and you know finally my boss says you can't do this we can't allow you to do this anymore you're going to have to go to treatment or, you, or you're fired Well, needless to say, I chose treatment. So I went to treatment, and I spent my 30-some days in treatment, and I came out, and I stayed sober for 18 months. And that was, you know, it was a piece of cake. You know, I didn't have to drink. That's that willpower. I didn't have to drink, I wasn't, I didn't, you know, happy joys are free, who knows, because I'm working, you know, 60, 70 hours a week, what the heck, I didn't have time to worry about happy joys are free, drinking 30 hours a week, so, but uh, one day I, was, I went to, I was on my way to one of my uh, outpatient treatments that I had to go to, and I said, well, you know, I'm going to pick up this half point. And I picked up a half pint on the way to the meeting. I wasn't gonna drink it before I got there, needless to say. And on the way back, I took a little sip, and it tastes pretty damn good. And so I said, Shh. but I put it back under the front seat of the truck because, hey, you know, I, I, they tell me in meetings, you know, don't drink and all this good stuff. If you drink too much, you're gonna get drunk and you get your DUIs. Course, I had plenty of DUIs in the, you know, don't get me wrong, in this time frame. But uh, so finally. One day I was on my way there, and I'm on my way back from one of my outpatient treatments. It must have been a month or so later. I remember the bottle was underneath the front seat of the car. i mean, my truck, so I took it out, and I proceeded to drink it all. But it's just a half a pint. That ain't nothing. But uh, it was enough to get me going again. And I, I worked for a, another couple years, and I got fired. So th- I did one of the things that, that I had to do, and I, I don't know about you guys, but I know Mama was going to take care of me. So I was going to move back to Omaha. she says, okay. So I moved back to Omaha and uh, kept on drinking. By this time, you know, my, my older brothers. one of them had quit drinking. God had said, hey, stop drinking. And he didn't even go to treatment. He didn't go to AA. He just quit drinking one night. So that was a good thing. But my other older brother, he was drinking and he came back from the war. He was a, he was a mess. And my two, I got two brothers, well, actually three brothers under me, and two of them were alcoholics. And I got a sister that's under me. She finally quit drinking. And I, my baby sister, she was a drinker. So the only one that did drink was my baby brother, and I don't know why he didn't. I don't know what the genes do. But they jump all around anyway. He, 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 he didn't drink. But, uh, but in Omaha, I got my DUIs, and I finally, finally, they, I got arrested and went to jail. I spent six months in jail, which is a piece of cake, because for an alcoholic with our minds, anyway, with my mind, They had what they call a trustee. You'd be a trustee in jail. You buff the floors or serve. And I, I was a trustee. I made sixteen bucks a month. I mean, sixteen dollars a week. And at that time, that's what a carton of cigarettes cost. So my sixteen dollars paid for my cigarettes. Hey, and then I had all the food I wanted. Oh man, it was great. But I got out of there. Fast forward in in ninety two, just before Thanksgiving in ninety two. I had what they call a moment of clarity, and that moment of clarity says, Dan, you can't live like this no more, you gotta quit, and, you know, I listened to that, but I didn't quit right away because it's, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, I wasn't gonna quit just before the holidays, ain't gonna happen. But in January, January 13th of 1993, I went into to the VAH treatment facilities. And I didn't go in because I had to. I had to, but I didn't have to. Nobody was forcing me to go into this, but I knew I had to do something. And I remember when I was been sober and AA had helped me before. So I went in, and I went in, and... I didn't want, and I couldn't listen to what they were telling me. They were telling me that I was an alcoholic, and I wasn't, I wasn't in for that. I could not believe that. I, if they had approached me and said, Dan, you got a problem with alcohol and that your life's unmanageable like it says in step one, I could have went for that. But that's not what they did. They said, you're an alcoholic, and you're going to get sober, and you're going to get better. And I said, I'm not an alcoholic. And my mind closed to all help. And for the first two or three weeks, I didn't pay attention at all. And then the last week and a half, I said, well, hey, yeah, I'm here. I might as well try to, might, might, might hear something. I didn't. So, But they said on my way out, once I finished my, my treatment time, they said, we'll see you back again. We'll see you again. And I told, in my mind, I said, I'm going to show these son of those guns. They'll never see me again. And they told me when I got out, go to meetings, and I did that. And I, I got my old job back, and I worked. I got up, I went to work, came home, ate supper, went to meetings, came home, went to bed. Got up, went to work, ate supper, come home, ate supper, went to meetings, and went to bed. And I did that for two and a half years. That's just how defiant we alcoholics, this alcoholic, can be. I will show you, I'm not gonna get drunk no more. I won't be back in that VA. In two and a half years, I sat in meetings and didn't say a word. It comes to being I didn't even say I passed. And I tell you, that was one miserable period in my life. And I don't know, one day after about two and a half years, I just got fed up. I mean, hell, I might as well drink. Life was miserable, irritable, and discontent. I might as well go out and drink. And I got up, and when I was leaving this last meeting, I was never going to come back to this meeting again. I to put somebody in my life that asked me what in the hell do you want and I said I want to be happy joyous and free like I hear people say he says are you willing to go to any length to get that and I said yes and this, for this alcoholic when I said yes I had to do it and this guy that I had was he had about well he must have had 13 years because he's got 30 some years now so, so he says, okay. So we started going through the steps of our alcoholics and, alcoholics. and step one, I could understand because he didn't say I was an alcoholic because I told him up front, I'm not an alcoholic. He says, okay, no problem. He says, do you have a problem with alcohol? I said, yeah. He says, your life unmanageable. I, I said, yeah. He says, you willing to go to any length? And I said, yeah. And he says, well, do you realize that you haven't had a drink in two and a half years? It never occurred to me. I went to Alcoholics Anonymous for two and a half years and never had a drink. It never occurred to me. He says, do you, do you want to drink? He says, I said, hey, I have no desire for a drink. And he says, do you think that obsession has been removed? I says, yeah. He says, do you think you did that? So I had to stop and think about it for a minute. I'm the one that did that. I'm the one that went at all them meetings. I'm the one that didn't drink. And I said, yeah. He said, well, do you think you had that much power? In Early in your years of drinking, you tried to quit time and time again. You, you couldn't do it. I said, no. But he says, now you think that you, after all this time that you can do it? Oh. And I said, yeah. Because I was not ready to believe that God removed that obsession to drink. I wasn't ready to believe that. I wasn't ready. To, I, I did it all by myself. My ego would not allow me to be humble myself and say I had help. I did it. So he said, okay. And in, in, in all this time, you know, that we're doing these things, I had a sponsor that he believed in service work. And he, he got me into being a treasurer and a, a secretary of of this and 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 we went to different functions and I mean we were going somewhere two or three times a month. And I enjoyed those things. Matter of fact I loved them. And and I come and I come to depend on him to show me how to live. And he did those things. And we got to step three and he says, uh, you know, uh You ready to turn your life and your will over to care of God as you understand Him? I said, Do what? He said, Turn your life and your will over to the care of God as you understand Him. I said, I don't understand God, and I ain't ready to turn my life and my will over to nobody. But see, little did I know that my sponsor was suggesting I do things, and I did them, and they worked. So I I actually turned my life and my will over to Him, but I didn't know that. He was my God at the time, and you know I tell you anybody that that that's doing the program or whatever, hey, there's nothing wrong with that from from my perspective until you can come to believe that there is a power greater than yourself. But I and I, I I believed him, and so what I and I did those things, and I can remember we like I say we did a lot of service work, and he got me into becoming a GSR, and. You know, just on and on and on, one thing after another, and I can remember in 2000, 2000 mm-hmm. we were at a we were at a meeting, and they needed a DCM. Well, hell, I ain't got time to do that, but my sponsor says, "Yeah, you do," because I was working, and I, you know, I'm I'm still going to be a president of something. So, but I, I became a DCM and, and, and you know what Whew, I had plenty of time I had plenty of time and what I learned up to that point was and he was a firm believer in that this disease of alcoholism is a killer and that what's the word for it we can help one another when nobody else can and he instilled in me that my primary purpose, and I'll call it my primary purpose of being here is to help the still-suffering alcohol. And I believe that today. And that's why, you know, I, I'm a firm believer in that. But, you know, I, I became a DCM, and I stayed at DCM for a couple of years, and then you rotate out. And I was about to get out. And my sponsor, when I was a DCM, the one that got me there deserted me and went to went to uh, Texas. Well, shit, now what am I do? I got nobody to tell me what I need to do. And before he left, I said, now what am I going to do? And he says, Dan, don't worry about it. Just keep doing what you're doing. And I said, okay. And I was sponsoring people. And I kept on sponsoring people. And... One day I woke up and I said, No, wait a minute, something's wrong, because I w I didn't get another sponsor because there was nobody to take the place of that guy that I had. Nobody could live up to his to my expectations of what a sponsor should be. And he kept telling me, Dan get a sponsor, I says, okay. And Dan get a sponsor, I says okay. And I never did. And I would kept on sponsoring people. But you know, that's 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 how sick my mind is, okay? Because I Before, when my sponsor told me to do something, and I did it, and it worked, I trusted him, and every time he told me to do something, I did it, and it worked. And now he's telling me to get a sponsor, and I'm saying, no way. Now, what kind of sense does that make? So finally, I said, okay, because I woke up one day and I said, I'm sponsoring people. How can you sponsor somebody and if you don't have a Sponsor. And I believe in this way of life of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I got a sponsor. And the sponsor that I had, he's got uh, a few years anyway. And and he is AA all the way. He lives and breathes Alcoholics Anonymous. And he's one of those people that he's been a DCM. He's been a delegate. He's been this. He's been that. And people from headquarters call him and ask him, where is this? And how should we do this? And on and on and on. But that's what he lived for. In and out Day in a day, I I'm not that kind of guy. I love Alcoholics Anonymous, but he can tell you what page stuff is on. I can't, but but that's all right because he taught me some of the things that I didn't know. That my other sponsor and and, and being in the program, and I learned from him. And today, you know, I put both of those sponsors together, and and I, I I know a little bit about Alcoholics Anonymous enough to get by. enough to understand that it is, it's something that I have to do for me is to help you if I don't help me and keep me sober I can't help you at all and if my primary purpose is to help that still suffering alcoholics, I have to get sober and know, how, and know what I'm talking about to a degree and I, you know, we went through steps four and five with my first sponsor and that was a tough one because step four was a tough one for me Because I didn't know what character defects were. And the first time I took that list to him, he sent me back and told me to do it over and over. And we did. About three months it took me to get through step four. But see what was amazing? By the time we got to step five, and I did my step five with him, the amazing thing was I already trusted him. He had already shown me what my defects were. I, it was just an easy thing for me because we worked together. So I, hey, life, life was good. And then you know when I humbly turned them over and asked God to humbly remove my defects of character, that was a that was not a hard thing to do. And eight and nine, you know, eight, that was a tough one. But I did a pretty good step four and five. So eight and nine was not no big deal, but I made it with my dad. And I remember when I, I mean, my first one was mom was easy because she said, I was wondering when it was going when you get sober, and I said, hey, yeah. She says you don't owe me or nothing because I knew and I've been praying to God that you'd be all right, and my my prayers were answered. Dad was a different story because dad's an alcoholic, and I hated my dad. Believe me, because he left. Us and there was eight kids, and he moved into a lady that had eight kids and eight sixteen grandkids. And I, <laughs> I said, "How in the world did anybody leave this situation, even though you don't like it, to move into another one that's multi, full of full of misery?" But he he did that. But he's he was a drinker. He had those little bottles, that little one. Not even a, to me it wasn't even a one shot bottle, but that, a lot of people it was a one shot bottle. He carried them with him all the time in his pockets. But when I went to make my amends to him, and I and and I said, Dad, you know, what can I do to help you stop drinking? He said, What? Well, <laughs> I don't want to stop drinking. I love to drink. He says the only regrets that he had is that. My baby sister and my baby brother hated him with a passion. The rest of us could kind of put up with Dad, but they hated him with a passion because he had been so bad to Mom. And in their way, they would never forgive him. And he said, that's the only thing that I regret, is that they will never forgive me. And I says, Dad, why don't you ask him? He says, I'm afraid to. So fear is a monster. He wanted so bad to have them, t- to get to know him, but he was afraid, and he wasn't ready to quit drinking. So it's it, it. So I said, "Well, Dad, I'm sorry I can't help you in that way." And to this day, well, I shouldn't say that because my baby sister died about five years ago of a brain tumor, which was tore Mama up because that was baby sister. That was her. That was her baby. But. Uh, She about gave up, and I said, "Mom, don't do that. You got too much to live for." And me and Mom got closer and closer together. But uh, so it was. And Dad died about well, about 15 years ago, of alcoholism. NVA. He had a triple bypass, and they have some stuff in their arm. And when they're supposed to take him out within 24 hours, well, they took out one. They left the one, the other one, in there for three days. And they finally decided to take it out. And he bled to death. He a heart attack, well, he died. And we sued him, but suing him, you sue the government, what do you do? You get money, your own money. <laughs> but we did that. But I mean, hey, I t- we took the money. Okay. But uh, And you know, the funny thing about it was, it was, it was a pastor that told us on the slices, I'd sue him if I were you. A pastor. <laughs> We did. But you know, I have been, and I was a community chairperson, and I've been around for a little while, and I got, to, one of the guys called me the other day that I've been sponsoring, and he's a DCM now. It took him three years to get two years of sobriety, but he, he worked his way, he's, he's been sober now, about five years I think now, and he's currently a DCM, and he's doing, he's doing the deal. other people are doing the deal. And I can remember one thing that really, really got to me when I was uh, a a DCM, is because DCMs are always expected to speak, and and I spoke at a place one time, and and four years later, four or five years later, I was speaking again at another place, and a girl came up to me and said, Dan, do you remember me? No, she says. You know, I remember you. you spoke. For, well, she said five years ago, and I listened, I heard what you said, and I've been sober ever since. And those are the type. Those are the types of deals. And that's how. Anyway, this alcoholic loved to hear. Not that I had anything to do with it, that. God, hey, God said, had me say something that she needed to hear, and she was sober. That's the rewards that I get. Of working this program and living the way I live today, I love it. I love every minute of it. And you know, I got a son that lives in Colorado, uh, and I got two grandkids out here. And three years ago, it'll be three years in, in the first of November. I had a back operation because my my spine broke, physically broke. Oh. And I had been having pain all these years, but doctors would not operate because they didn't like to operate on backs. But it broke, and I had to have surgery. So I went in, and they fused it together. I got that plate in the back. Painful, absolutely painful. But I made it through. But see, I'm here in Arizona with my son and my two grandkids. get to see them grow up. I never would have moved out here if it hadn't been for that broken back. I had a good job. I'm still working up the chain. I'm comfortable where I'm at, but I want. But God says, you know, man, you want to get out there with your grandkids. We're going to get your back fixed and get you out to Phoenix, Arizona. And that's what—that's my way of thinking. I never would have moved out here. If it hadn't been for a broken back. It's fixed. It still hurts periodically. I can't work, with, but they won't give me disability. And I, that's a resentment that I'm working on. It. I can't work. What the hell? Give me disability. I've been trying, and I've sent, and they've been denying it. But the thing is, that I, I, I basically, I'm out here in Phoenix, and I get a chance to be with my son and my, my daughter in law, who I love dearly, and my two grandkids. They're seven and nine. I get the opportunity to watch them grow. I went to the basketball game last Saturday. Now he's seven. Soon in December he'll be eight. What is it? They run up down, they don't know what they are, standing around and walls on. But you know, that, that was joyful for me, just to be here and watch him and see him do that. And my and my granddaughter, she's in gymnastics and all of these other good things. And, and I get the joy of watching them grow up. I never would have had God, God saw fit to do for me what I couldn't do for myself. I'm here today in Arizona and I love it. When I first got here, my first meeting, I got here on a Wednesday, I went to a meeting Thursday night up in the Stray Mountains. That's been my home group ever since. And I go to the West Valley Fellowship and I and I, you know, I'm an alcoholic from day one. I've learned to live through this disease, live with this disease. And, and like I am I'm, I'm an old time from the old time schools. And if you don't do the 12 steps like it should be done, you don't do the 12 traditions like they should be done, and the concepts like they should be done, you can, you, you, you can have a 12 step meeting, but you can't have an RA meeting. Anyway, I don't call it an aid meeting. It's a 12-step meeting for me. But I mean, that's okay. Because I know today that it's not up to me to have a meeting, do whatever they want to do. If I can say something or do something to help a still-suffering alcoholic, I'll do whatever it takes no matter where it's at. If i got to go down to the jail to do it. if i got to go to a church. I have to go to a 12-step meeting. I don't care what you call it. My primary purpose today is to help the still-suffering alcohol. And with God's grace in these rooms, I will continue to do that. My life gets gooder and gooder and gooder every day. And if I had to put a, an expectations on what this program would do for me, I would have sold myself short. Because it's given me more than I could have ever expected. And I know there's more. The big book says, keep coming back. More will be revealed. And I know this to be a fact. So today, I'm just grateful to be here. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, all of you, for being here. And I love you all. Thank you much. Thanks, Uh, man.